Good afternoon or good evening or good morning, depending on where you're uh, coming into this uh, webcast. Uh, we are airing Future Proofing Now Season 2, Episode 2, second installment. And um, it's by popular demand. We uh, had a poll about, oh, about four webcasts ago where we asked people, what did people most want to hear about? And this was the topic that uh, went right to the top. And so Previously, we did a webcast based on uh, conversations about the future. Um, today, we're getting into the thickets. We're actually going to have four very interesting companies with wickedly smart people um, talk about what uh, they're doing in AI in the real world, in the marketplace where we all live in. So I'd love to uh, introduce my fellow co-host, Andrew Cates, um, who is uh, on this venture and webcast with me, um, arm in arm, hand in hand. Welcome, Andrew. Hey, great to be here and uh, excited for this this demo round two spotlight series with some very, very interesting technologies. And special commendations as always for Joanne, who is our community manager and makes all of this run. And trust me, today we've had nine different panelists across many different geographies and somehow it's all worked. So, um, so thank you, Joanne. Um, here is our illustrious panel, which we will introduce in our kind of 10 minute installments of understanding what they do. But Kevin's making a return appearance. Um, he's chairman and CTO of Advance. Christian's uh, coming in from Copenhagen today, chief experience officer for Valuer. Um, Clarice uh, is an engineer working for Labelbox. And Jonathan is founder of Discourse AI. And we're gonna learn about a lot of their tools and businesses and how they produce meaningful value for companies that are um, entertaining uh, their product. And Andrea, just, I don't know if you have any comments on this, but we uh, have recently seen, I guess, AI in action, haven't we? Well, we've talked about the good side and the dark side of AI, and we also have talked a lot about data and, and the ability to do what we all call pattern recognition and the mindset of being able to see, we used to call it fuzzy data, things that were early signs of not knowing where it was heading. And what's great uh, about the way that that's all uh, matured is that now this ability to look at patterns of data can be applicable in lots of different industries. And unfortunately, because of this week's really uh, shocking, alarming, and scary news about the, this uh, epidemic, the early signs of being able to look at data in an, from an epidemiological perspective is actually, I think, pretty hopeful that, that AI for good can, can have a lot of great applications. So I, I actually think that it's scary, but also reassuring that, that we have more technology to put it scary things like that. We produce this every April. Um, it is fairly rigorous and, um, you know, there's not too many things that tech people mainly agree on. We love to debate and argue things. And certainly on this list, there were a lot of arguments from kind of number 10 through 30 people argued what should be on, what shouldn't be on. But I think universally people thought AI is not only the most important technology, but it probably pervades most of these other technologies or drives them. So it's, it's really tough to create different parameters, but certainly it's number one on our list. I don't know, Andrea, do you have any Well, there's, what I learned is that there are a lot of people that listen to this as a podcast. <laughs> so I'm actually going to voice over a couple of these. I think it's very interesting that in the past, everyone's talked about what's the difference between an actual trend we should pay attention to and a buzzword. And the difference, in our opinion, from the Future Proofing Next perspective is a buzzword doesn't get acted on because people think it's frivolous. People think it's just kind of a meme. They treat it like an emoticon and hopefully it will go away. 
what we're seeing about some of these, uh, whether it's blockchain, which is number four, the mobile social internet and this notion of peer-to-peer -peer and what's happening with that, the internet of things, which is number two, and now of course, number one, which is artificial intelligence, which includes machine learning and deep learning. These are, these are really in the application phase in virtually every industry right now. And so people say, is this just a fad? We say, we have choices about AI. We can either give up or we can catch up. And we believe that sessions like today are about catching up. We have to learn a lot more. We have to be really able to discern where we might be able to apply it to our businesses. So I think it's great that people are talking about it. So that's kind of a buzzword. But I also think that people are doing something about it. And that's where we think that this is the session. That's what it's designed for. And as we scroll into today, I think um, I guarantee you people that are going to be listening or watching this uh, webcast podcast will know a little bit about AI, but probably haven't seen it in action. So I, I love the fact that we're going to um, tour through four different versions of different solutions that are happening. Um, we had also done a, um, a survey as part of our digital and uh, technology periscope um, piece, and um, we ranked at least what innovators, so definitely a, a special set of people, what they saw AI and the value that it was providing them. And um, I'm not too sure if you would have parsed out AI in these 10 different pieces, but um, it's important to note that AI has many different things. I think Kevin, in our previous webcast, accurately suggested AI was a really good marketing term, but it was probably insufficient in terms of defining kind of its full extent and what it actually does for people in 2020. Any thoughts here, Andrew? No, I'm looking forward to hearing from the, the experts and how they resonate for them and where they think the, the well, future is going. It. I think um, we don't have to um, kind of work through this uh, anymore. I'd, I'd love to advance to maybe our first, uh, first panelist, Kevin. Um, you're technically our first return visitor on webcast, but you've only done that because you're on two hours earlier talking about the exact same topic, but it's probably because we value so much. Um, CTO, Chairman, Advance.ai, I know how you think. Now I'm going to actually see how, you, how your product actually works. And in this day and age where it's so tough to prove you're the best at something, I love your um, kind of tagline. You're the first AI-driven test automation software. You, no one can ever take that away from you. You're first at it, right? <laughs> that, that's a, it's, it's a great way to market it. Yes, you're, you're either the first or you're not the first. We, we launched uh, this technology uh, about three years ago, back in 2017. And, and, um, and the idea was, can you test certain kinds of software, primarily business software or consumer software? Um, could you test it automatically? And, I'll, uh, and I've got some overview of why we think that's an important problem to solve. So I was touring your website. Uh, I got really advanced, if that's a, a verb I can use. <laughs> I hope so. It worked for Google. <laughs> if it happens, I want some credit back to me in terms of presenting it. There but, you go. Um, there's a lot of impressive, uh, what I'll call bar charts on your site, where it's like, it leads me down the road of, why would I ever not use AI to actually do this specific right. method? Because the productivity and efficiency are so, so, um, so different versus any kind of human that, that is true. I, look, I, I, as I said earlier on our, our, our first podcast is, I like to say that AI is not artificial intelligence, it's augmented intelligence. It's meant to augment the good work that your teams are doing. <clears throat> it will replace some of their work, but that will free them up to do other work, right? And, and, and so, uh, uh, testing software uh, today, uh, all I have to do is say, 
all of, do all of us use software? Yes. Do all of us use apps? Yes. Do all of us go to websites? Yes. And do all of us find bugs every day? Every day. And the more complex the business software is, the more buggy it is, and the less bugs that they find and the more bugs that customers find. And that's actually a, a, an issue for brands. It's an issue for productivity. It's an issue for everything. And, and, um, and, and here's what's happening. The, the software is getting more complex and the budgets for QA don't go up. And, and the only way we've dealt with this for 20 years is to add more people. And it turns out at some point when you've got a QA team of 2,000 or 3,000 or 4,000 people, which believe it or not, companies do, um, uh, and a large company may have 10 to 15,000 applications, by the way, that they manage. So a bank has about 15,000 applications on average that run their bank, et cetera. You, people don't know that it's that large. Um, this is a huge problem. Like it's an unbelievable problem and, and there aren't enough people to do the work and they're not good enough and they don't have enough time and we're trying to collapse the cycles. And so, you know, um, the wheels come off the bus pretty quickly and it's a great uh, a place to apply machine learning to help alleviate some of that burden from the people. Last question before we pass the baton to you and actually take a tour through it. Um, you know, I'm working in a, you know, mid to large size company. Um, I run across AppVance. Like who, who, who is most likely to spark to what you're doing here? Sure. And who will you sure. do? Uh, CIO, obviously, ultimately the CIO is responsible for, could be CTO, right? CIO or CTO is responsible for the quality of their products and the quality of the software that runs their company and, the, and often the quality of, of the software or websites or, or apps that, that they put out to the to consumers or to the customers, right? So um, CIO, CTO, uh, certainly, uh, certainly are the first people. As you go down, then it's VP of quality or VP of dev, and then you get sort of to director of quality. And sort of the lower you get on that totem pole, the less interested they are. And the reason for that is that if you're the manager of a quality team, let's just say, uh, you manage a quality team and you've got 200 people and you've worked for 10 years to get from zero to 200 people. The last thing you want to do is change anything that you do. And what you do all day is write test scripts or manually test software. So this thing is freaky to you, right? It's, it's as if you're a taxi driver and then there's a driverless car next to you and you go, this, this can't be good for me long term, right? And, and so at the lowest levels, people are concerned. But once you get up to levels of QA engineer and, and development people and things like that, they're not scared. They don't want to do that stuff anyway, right? They want to, they want to get rid of that. So I'm going to try to share this. So give, it, give me a second because I've got to share this and then I've got to increase the size. And then I'm going to ask you to make sure that it's operating properly. So, all right, can you see that? Yes, we can. Excellent. So I'm going to go through uh, very, very few, a uh, little bit of an overview and then go right into some demos and then close up with how it works because you're going to want to know how it works. So the idea is to find bugs autonomously. It's not a bad idea. It's, it's, it's obvious, right? When I tell you, <clears throat> here's what you don't know. $120 billion a year is spent testing software around the world. $120 billion, 95% of that is people. There's almost no technology. There's a little bit of basics, mostly open source technology to help uh, uh, um, essentially write scripts, but, 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 but that's it. And, and, and so one could use AI and QA for many things, and we use it for all of these things, but recognize objects, pinpoint the cause of errors, 
sell fuel scripts, et cetera. But we think that the big driver is to automatically generate tests and automatically find bugs because that reduces the people time. Because if you look at this chart, that's where people spend their time. They spend all of their time writing scripts or manually testing. That's actual data from the industry or fixing scripts, right? So go after the big time sink. And I think we should always use all technology, AI, machine learning, whatever, to go after the things that people spend most of their time on. <clears throat> Just like driverless vehicles, there are five levels of autonomy in test and QA. These are the five levels. We're the only people offering actually all five levels. But to put it in perspective, 70% of the industry of the world is at level zero today. That's how bad they are, there's manual testing. And about 30% is at level one. There's less than 1% even at level two and almost nobody's level three, level four, level five. And from a technology perspective, we're the first and the only people offering level three, level four, level five, right? And level five means hands off, minds off. I've got some setup. There are things that I've got to feed the system. But once I've done that, it will generate tests by itself. It will find bugs by itself. And it will validate that the thing works by itself. And as you can imagine, all the productivity comes at level four and level five, just like it does in a driverless vehicle, right? All the real productivity for you to stay on Facebook the whole time is when you get to level five and you can just fall asleep or do whatever. Before that, you still have to be somewhat awake. But by the time you're at level five, the machine owns it. So here is not, this is not us. This is a standard way for many people watching this who've never seen this. It's a standard you way. on this. You had said you'd been using the tool for so long and you've now retired it, right? Yeah, well, this is, this, is, um, uh, this is Selenium. This is a standard way that people write scripts today. And they go through this process of going back and forth and finding what's called accessors, that is ways to locate an object. And here we're just going to write a simple 16-step script. And a script is a way to repeat what you want to test over and over and over again. This particular script at the UI will execute these 16 steps. Okay, that's fine. It took me 20 minutes and 41 seconds to write one script, but by the time I data drive this and make it customized data and some other customized features, it might be about two hours on average to write a single test. And by the way, for a large business application, I may have 2,000 to 3,000 tests or more. That gives you an idea of how hard this is, right? <clears throat> now I'm going to let a machine do something very similar. And what I'm going to do is just set this up to get ready to generate tests. I'm gonna click generate tests. I've now generated them in 1.4 seconds. I generated 183 very similar scripts to that. 27 of them are deemed completely unique, so I'm just gonna keep the 27 in this particular case. I'm gonna show you now what a machine generated. So this is a script or a test generated completely by a machine, no recording, no human involvement. It's 39 steps long, okay? And it was generated at a certain speed. And, and this is a very valuable script, which I will explain in a second, very valuable test. And to put this in perspective, oh, by the way, this works with mobile as well. I'll just go ahead here, but you can see there's no human involvement here. The system is actually testing this mobile application by itself. And it's actually executing every possible thing that can be executed based on a set of rules that was given to it. How fast is this? Well, on average, the machine will write tests 100,000 times faster than writing Selenium scripts. This is actually true. We've been able to measure it for three years. 
So that seems like a crazy number, but of course it's a machine and I can run it in parallel. So it's not a surprise that it's way, way fast, but is it useful? Well, it turns out, yes. Does it use machine learning? It actually uses a lot of machine learning, but very traditional machine learning, there is no ability to use deep learning here because we don't have large data sets. We have quite small data sets. In fact, there's only one large data set that's valuable and all the rest are pretty small. So when you have smaller data sets, you're typically not using very, very deep neural nets because you can't, you don't have enough data. So we do this in two, step, two quick steps called a blueprint and, and, um, and a regression uh, uh, generator. And basically the blueprint has already built out over several years what we call a component actions library. It'll launch a hundred kind of bots, if you will, or a hundred threads to now go through and learn the application, all communicating with each other so they don't go do the same thing. So think of it as a hundred people in a room that have been given some instructions, like where to start, where to end, what to do, what not to do, and what to look for, what to validate. And it's just gonna go out and do that. And as it's doing it, it's writing the test behind it. And that generates 1,000 to 20,000 tests or so with the results right away in under an hour. So you've got thousands of tests that ran, it's given you the results, it is fully tested, every UI action and every server request, right? Very cool. And then you can further refine that by analyzing production logs and production logs are on every server, but they have no personally identifiable information on them. So you don't have to worry about that, but we can see what requests were made to the server and between that and what we learned in the blueprint phase, we could put it back together through an AI algorithm called predator prey, feed that to a code generator and automatically generate tighter scripts that mimic what your users have been doing in production without ever tracking any users. Didn't track anything, we don't know anything about a user, but analyzing these huge production logs, that's the only large set of data we get. And so between all of that, you get multiple kinds of tests and this last one actually mimics what your users do. And to wrap up here pretty quickly, what's the productivity improvement? Well, here we measured the test creation to find the exact same bugs. So I wanna find the same 500 bugs that the system found, what would I have to do? Well, on the left, I would take almost 5,000 hours to write those 2,200 scripts. And on the right, the machine would write the, the majority of them. And even the ones that I'd have to write, I can write five to 10 times faster, four to 10 times faster. So you save actually about 98% in man hours and get the same bugs. We found the same thing, same output, was able to do it fully, fully by machine. So, so, um, so I'll open up the questions, I guess. Anyone uh, here have any questions before we jump off? I guess one of the big things, uh, since you've set it up and then showed us the tool, most of the things that you mentioned are at level three, level four, level five, <coughs> getting that exponential benefit. Uh, I'm guessing your answer is gonna be somewhat human-based in terms of why people aren't at three, four, five, but um, if that's the true value, how do we get companies to start adopting some of the more sophisticated uh, machine learning? It, it, it is actually a human problem. And I think everyone else on here is going to probably say the same thing is that you've got teams of people that have come up through industry that have been writing scripts exactly like I showed you for 20 years. It's a very, very old technique. And all of a sudden you come and say, trust the machine. Well, they don't trust the machine very easily. That, that is a big leap. It's like getting in a driverless car the first time. Do you really trust that thing going down the highway at 80 miles an hour? Kind of. By the way, you should. We fundamentally know we should. That machine is way better than me driving it. However, it's a little spooky. 
And so um, I think that all of applied AI has a, uh, has a challenge, has a hurdle to overcome, which is uh, uh, can we trust that it's going to do the right thing? Can we trust that it's going to find all the bugs? Can we, can we trust it instead of trust? I know I can trust my 2,000 humans in a room. It's slow, laborious, and expensive, but we know what happens. It's not perfect, but at least we know what we get. Can we trust that this is at least that good? And we can show it mathematically. We can show the output. We show it finds more bugs, but it takes a long time to trust. The second thing is that today, we're the only people you can, this is the only company that has level three, four, five, and we have a slew of patents in the field. We don't, you know, we don't have a direct competitor yet. Um, and so, um, so that's the other thing. There's kind of limited availability. You have to find us and get it from us, but we have an awful lot of very large customers using this across uh, hundreds, uh, you know, if not thousands of tests a day now that we see that are run every single day. And again, lastly, people use this to augment their other work. They don't replace all 2000 people, but maybe they keep 200 and let this do most of the heavy lifting. And then they repurpose some of their other people and then others probably were overseas and they let them go. <laughs> so <laughs> that's kind of what the, the mix of what you get. This is a really powerful example to begin with. Um, I know we're going to come back to you at the end of this, maybe provide some synthesis based on learning three other kind of solutions. And, uh, and we've already provided the information. If you do have questions as well, leave them in the chat box and uh, we'll make sure Kevin either during this webcast or after we'll get those um, as well. All right. So uh, I'm going to pass, uh, if you can pass it. Okay. There we go. Um, back to you, Andrea. Well, uh, that was a great framing, and there's a very interesting uh, transition, I think, between what you just talked about and what we'll hear, from, hear about next. I'll first start by introducing Christian Lewitz Hovorsen. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh, well, yes? Lewitz Hovorsen. And Yeah, sorry for being Danish. <laughs> Uh, no, no worries. I, I met your company in Copenhagen, actually, a couple of months ago and was very interested in introducing you and letting you introduce yourself. Um, you're representing valuer.ai. And today you'll be talking about something. I think it's really interesting that, that Kevin started with a couple of things, this notion of trust, this notion of doing things that people aren't necessarily comfortable doing through an AI application, but they sort of have a, this mental hurdle that they have to get over. So start with a very, the, the very quick version of what is value or what do you do, why it was created. And then I'll, of course, pass the ball to you so you can show us the magic behind the screen. So yeah, exactly. uh, yeah introduce the company. What, what do you do? What, what, why were you created? Uh, what's the tech that makes value possible? So in, in about uh, two years ago, we started up and the idea behind it is you have a lot of data out there. Um, and it's hard to analyze and, and, and use all this data to make decisions. And a lot of corporations out there in terms of innovation look at a landscape where stuff is moving so much quicker than they can follow along with. You have innovation departments that have been told to focus on digital transformation or other subjects. And then all of a sudden there's a million solutions out there and all of them are turning over quicker and quicker. So we've developed a solution that looks into the data and helps the corporations to define a search and a focus from their perspective, then translate it into our machine learning engine room and helps them provide the output by giving them feedback mechanisms and a way to follow through the structure. 
Well, one of the things one of the things that we're also super interested in, and we're, we'll chat up front, and then, as I said, I'll pass the ball in a minute. But one of the things we're also interested in is we, we have a lot of people in our Future Proofing Next community who are corporate leaders, and they know sometimes they feel terrible with regards to startups because they feel like the startups are nimbler and faster and, and more techy. And other times they can feel really comfortable because they've got all the data and with the tools from these startups, sometimes you can equip the one plus one and actually use their data for new outcomes and that actually can give them an advantage. Where do you stand with regards to the potential for valuer to be of value to corporate leaders? Well, the, the point here is that we want to provide this objective uh, lens they can use to then actually address the startup community and, and we see ourselves as the potential middle point in the multi-sided platform or where, where these startups corporations can meet. I mean you could even consider us as a dating service with a lot more uh, qualitative measures than Tinder but still it's a, it's a point where you are able to match the right talent with each other and that is uh, now more than ever corporations and startups that have to work together. So that's what we try to enable and, and provide them the tools and the mechanisms to make sure that this actually works out. So evaluating all these features that has to work uh, cohesively. Well, from our perspective, it's just about time for us to pass the ball to you because um, if, we, if we understand it correctly, there's a moment in history right now where large companies have data and a lot of capabilities and capacity and are being told to join this digital revolution. And then we have all these startups out there trying to go to scale. And somewhere there's middle ground where they have to meet. I call it the watering yeah. hole. You know, all the different animals have to come to some sort of common place and figure out what the matches are. And so, yeah, not that it's a dating app, but it seems like a, it seems like a moment where everyone's looking for each other and they don't know where to look. And I would love to hear you show us and tell us the story of what Valuer does to work to, uh, to help in that, in that matchup. Yes, and I hope you can see my screen now. We can, it's perfect. Perfect. <clears throat> so I'm going, going to just quickly as a, as a, what's going to happen, I'm going to go through a presentation that uh, describes some of the functionality behind that enables it. And then I can jump over quickly and show uh, how it might look for the corporate innovators perspective, because there's a large difference between the machine room and the functionality and of course, the interface. And that's what we try to, to merge, not only the startups and the corporations, but also these parties that want to innovate with, uh, well, the capabilities that our platform provides. Great. So uh, to, to give a quick overview, we focus a lot on collecting data and, and, and as my co-host probably could um, agree on, it's all about the data and the quality of the data. So we have a large focus on collecting data out there in the, the ecosystem. There's a lot of connections on APIs and um, different sourcing mechanisms. One of my favorites is the Indian government uh, company registry, which is open for connection. And here we have all the companies added uh, from there. And that's one of the sources of many where we collect the data. We process them. We look at some of the neural networks where we can say what kind of um, sectors can we place them in based on the descriptive text out there. We then try to ensure that also through processing and translation, we have it all in a formalized data set and we build as far as we can from the beginning, a, a complete overview with somewhere between 30 and 70 parameters per startup, uh, different data fields. So, so that's all getting all of this into a database. And then we have a very large database with plus half a million 
companies registered uh, all with the qualified data. And these we try to cluster. So we look at something as uh, K-nearest neighbor, uh, an unsupervised learning algorithm, to set these up and say, well, how do they look like each other? And of course, what you're looking at now is a very simplified overview with two-dimensional. We would look at plus 30 dimensions. But this is our way of saying, well, we need to have some kind of objective overview of what is, what is going on here. So that could be based on the sectors and the descriptions, the funding amount, and all these other parameters, size of the company versus the age. And all of this gives us this initial overview of saying, now we have a group of companies that we can work with and that our corporations, our partners, our clients can work with. And this is where we make the match or the beginning of the match. We ask our corporations to define what are they looking for. Our clients are going to say, well, we have a goal. We have some sectors that are interesting. We have a description in terms of um, this is what we're facing as, as challenges and, and maybe some practical limitation as uh, region or stages for the candidates they're looking for. And then we apply, of course, different um, processing elements. One of them is the natural language processing, as you also mentioned, and some of the aspects of the, the AI, where we try to uh, feature hash and get the, uh, the uh, produce a vector from the description. So our corporation tells or our clients have the ability to write out in free form mostly what are the preferences. We have some guides and some instructional methods for that, but this is their way to communicate with our AI. They produce a vector of what they would like to find. It is basically the perfect startup or innovation candidate for them to work with. It's like filling out your, again, dating profile and say, I want this personality. Ours is a lot more complicated and uh, you will end up with innovation and not a, a, a date. Um, and then we put this into the clustering. It's very easy or it's not very easy, but it's then intuitive for us to say, well, this looks like this kind of startup, this group. And then we have the ability to say these uh, clusters very close to this projection are actually potentially relevant. And that's the initial matching we're looking at. So let me jump in and just do an analogy for one second. I remember sitting down with Tim Westergren, who was one of the, he might've been the, the founder of Pandora, which was one of the early music, uh, kind of like Spotify only early days. And he had this thing called the Music Genome Project. And it was a combination of algorithms and people because he had to have people sitting there saying, you know, we had categories like rhythm and blues, jazz, hip hop. But he, what he learned was that there were these emerging categories that came because I couldn't explain it, but suddenly everybody, when they were cooking, listened to a certain type of music that they would cluster as like cooking music. So there was a category that emerged based on uh, the, the way that the data, you know, the query in the beginning came up with R&B, but at the end it, came out as cooking music. Have you seen this so far where, where some of the parameters that the people give you actually evolve as you as over time? It, it, it's interesting. We have a couple of examples where we went from uh, clients that were looking into uh, digital transformation focused on utilities and they ended up in a sector of uh, blockchain applications. They hadn't considered this connection. It was earlier in our lifetime and of course blockchain is hotter and hotter, but that was one of the, we did not hear or see or ask for, would you be interested in blockchain? It was clearly not filled out in the form, but in the end from the results, that was one of the major clusters that were presented to them. That was super, super uh, interesting. Great. Yeah. Well, keep going, keep going. Yeah. Aspects. 
Yeah, well, keep, keep going with yours. I just wanted to get an analogy in there so that people who weren't as technical could understand in something that we've experienced, of course, which is music. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, then we actually do an element of saying, now, how do we make our these innovative people who are not, maybe not as technical work with their machine room? And that's where we give them voting. voting. We actually give them a democratic voting approach where they go and say, yes or no on individual examples from the clusters. It is not the entire subset or entire set of data they're presented with. It's a couple of examples from each of the groups. They're able to vote, and then we're able to readjust the projection of their radar, their vector. And that gives us the option to then align within this dimensional space. And we have a lot of stakeholders from the corporations, all with relevant backgrounds, all being invited in to collaborate, to adjust the search. And that's how we then achieve a better and better fit and we provide them with feedback mechanisms without sorting through a enormous database. Then we do some elements of qualifying the data. We do some research and we, the more data we get, the better we are actually ranking back to the vector. And we end up providing some extra services on the platform. That's why I think it makes a lot of sense for me to show the platform. Uh, am I showing the website now? Yes. Perfect. So this is then the view you're faced with if you go in as a client. And what I talked about in the beginning is, well, you want to start what we call a radar. And this is just the simple, uh, well, it's an interactive form that our clients can use. There's a lot of questions, there's uh, 13 in here, and I don't think we have the time to go through them. So we're, seeing, um, we're seeing magazine and platform delivery as a still slide. Is that, is that right? You're, you are. That's, okay, uh, perfect. Give me, give me, no, give me one second. I have it here. Yeah. Sorry. That's good. So I just opened up the thing that we have the option to activate a search. And this is how our client would do it. They would start a radar. They'll start a definition. They write in a three-form text. They re uh, define sectors. They define the locations of the candidates they're looking for. And then they're basically ready to go. So that skips all of the beginning steps we're talking about, saying, well, we do the data research. They define the approach. And now they're good to go. Then they're faced with an overview where they have the insight they can use of the process. We look at uh, how many candidates were potentially relevant and the timeline of what shows up. And we look at distribution of locations and such. And then the, the all important element for the alignment, well, this is where the co-workers can be invited in. They have example of startups that may or may not be relevant for them, identified as potentially relevant, and they go in and vote. Um, this is then the process in the middle that aligns and makes sure that they hit uh, the targets they're looking for. And when we, we uh, achieve the satisfactory fit from our end, we guide them to the results. And the results for them is, well, the startup profile, which they go in and view and we have done a research and communication with the startups and set up the best possible view for them. And I think I'm also hitting the time, but, but saying that you go from uh, a database and a access we have from more than half a million startups down to the most relevant for you based on your interaction as as low as possible within the machine room, but more of what do you know about startups? Do you find something interesting or not? And can you address this to achieve your most optimal innovation? Well, I think that was a really great um, intro. And what's interesting to us, I mean, these are all things that we would love to spend the full hour just with each of you. The overview takeaways are massive. I mean, first of all, lots of questions that I'm sure we'll think about, but the ability for, to apply AI, I mean, there's, there's, you know, 
we'd like to work with a startup and it's sort of everyone in your backyard versus the backyard being much bigger and the parameters for search being much better and also the, the, the matching so that people can develop over time a, a, a real history of, of helping you refine your algorithms. I mean, it, it just seems like, how long have you um, been working in this way with actual matches? So the, the first active client ended back in the two, uh, beginning of 2018. Uh, and since then we've matched, I think, plus a thousand uh, candidates to our corporations. And we deliver after one of these uh, searches between 20, 10 and 25 actual matches. So that's also getting down to the actionable result instead of the entire. We could provide them with a lot of lists, but yeah. people can't use that without the actionable data. Well, just in the interest of time only, um, I'd like to summarize with a couple of really great takeaways, I think, um, just from this. One is that it is a really great example of, of, of ways that data and refinement of categories and what we talked about earlier, pattern matching, can be applied. Um, and I also think that what you were talking about, you know, this notion of the um, being able to have companies have a wider array of better matches, it seems would make sense for both parties, for the startup so that they don't waste their time. We have a phrase at Future Proofing, don't love your startup partner to death, right? Mm -hmm. by, expect, by expecting them to do something that they're really not equipped to do, find that out early on and maybe refine in the search, measure twice and cut once. And then also from the um, from the startup's perspective, you know, they get also get to, uh, both parties will win because they get a chance to have that fit much better up front uh, before they've wasted a lot of time in, in incubators and accelerators and things where at the end of a few months, it's like this really isn't a fit. So lots and lots of questions. We love it. Please stay on so that at the end we can have some, some key takeaways. Um, that was really, really interesting. Yeah. So I'll turn it over to you, Sean. Yeah, no, I'm excited. Uh, we're, I guess, the halfway point of uh, our webcast. Uh, I've got Clarice uh, Wong here. She's from Labelbox. She's a machine learning support engineer. I know you've got a lot of data science in your background. You're in this role now. Um, we're going to talk about Labelbox. And one of your colleagues was on earlier, and I, I kind of said your product was kind of like a hall monitor for hall monitors. It's like, how do we make sure the data that we're getting is... Uh, is right and in place and, and there's a human aspect to it too. I, uh, I even saw a vision, um, I think on your website, it said uh, giving humans a better way to input and manage data, which I thought was a really intriguing way into what your product does. So maybe I'll, uh, I'll throw it over to you. What does your product do? Why was this, what's the raison d'etre behind Labelbox? Yeah, so one of the biggest headaches, both cost-wise and time-wise that data science teams face today is ensuring that the data they've collected will be efficiently translated into scalable quality training data. And so Labelbox is a collaborative annotation platform that brings data labeling, data management, and data science into a single place. So essentially data science teams can avoid the need for having to reinvent the wheel of creating these tools on their own, which can be hard and expensive and oftentimes not scalable. And so something you touched on, Sean, was that um, we do have a human in the loop type service, but something that does distinguish Labelbox from others in this space is that we are a software platform. So within our platform, instead of you know, just being a black box that takes in raw data and outputs your labeled training data, you have total transparency into the process, as well as the ability to customize things in your workflow. 
and before we show what your tool goes through, just to, what's the what's the pain point inside of a company? What when does a company go? God, we need somebody like Label Box. Is it out of frustration because of something that might something bad happened, or is it the prospect of something good, or are there both scenarios at play here? Yeah. So actually, this process of you know creating and managing labeling tools. Um, to, you know, create your annotations for training data often takes the spotlight away from what an ML team should actually be doing. So somebody that has a very specific use case, and I'll give you the most simple hello world example of machine learning is, you know, a project where you're trying to identify cats, you know, the input is images of cats and you want to train your model to be able to identify cats on its own. Um, so if the entire time, if 90% of your time is spent building the tools to create those labels, because an input image of a cat is, there will be other things. There will be trees in the background, there will be people, but those things are not what the cat is. So creating the training data, um, the, the process of just working on these tools and managing them can just take the attention away from actually the application that your industry is trying to conquer. Understood. Totally. Even though I'm a dog person, uh, that seems to be a uh, good, good real life metaphor. Why don't we, uh, why don't we have a look at your tool? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Are you guys able to see my screen? You're up. So this is the overview of the label box page when you first log in. And the first thing to note is that every user on the label box platform belongs to an organization. So for example, my company's name is label box Clarice. And if I want to manage the members within my platform, um, within my organization, I can do so with this members tab. And so essentially anybody that I've added within this page has access to all of the data that I've been working on. So this is really a centralized location of all of your raw data, all of your training data. And within this organization, we have data sets, which are collections of your raw data. So it can be image, it can be text, if you're working on a text classification project, um, and it can be tiled imagery, we support multiple data types. So I'll give you an example of one of these. Um, my cat's name is Pablo, so this data set is just pure images of Pablo. You can see they're just raw data, JPEGs. Um, and in this instance, I've just, I've stored my data onto the label box servers, but we also offer the option for people to um, upload links to their self-hosted data because ultimately you are in control of your own data, we're not. Um, so here you can see just a history of all of the data I've worked with in the past within my platform. From the projects page, I can see all of the um, kind of workflows that I've built surrounding each data set. So within a single project is really where you're going to be creating the tools that you need, defining them and creating your labels. So I'm gonna go ahead and show you how easy it is to get started on Labelbox. And the first step is just naming and defining your project. So this will be the label box demo spotlight project. 
Um, here I'm going to be attaching a data set. You can also choose to upload an existing one. Also, most of what I'm showing you is totally accessible through the API. So you can create a totally programmatic workflow for this. And I'll attach um, this data set of my cat Pablo. And the label editor is where you are going to be able to define the tools that you're using. Um, so what I want to be identifying in my data is images of cats. So I'm going to add a cat object. Um, you can also get even more granular than just defining a cat object. If you have classification questions about your object, you can create nested classifications. So um, for example, if, I, if I'm interested in training my model on the color of the cat, I can fill in a color classification that's tied to this instance of the cat. And I'll do some common colors, white, black, heavy, maybe mixed. And I've chosen to use the segmentation tool, um, but we also offer vector-based tools such as creating polygons or bounding boxes, lines, and points. Um, and we also offer instructions, which is a great way to really the specialists within your internal team. For example, if I'm a cat specialist and I know exactly what a label of cat should look like, um, and I have an external team working on creating the labels, I can give them detailed instructions on how they should be doing this. So I've just got a PDF of labeling instructions and I'll attach it here. And now I finished the setup for my project and I can begin labeling my data. And we've also got hotkeys, which makes labeling super easy. Um, so here, I'm just creating a boundary around Pablo. And the cool thing about the segmentation tool is I can either define points to create my object or I can go freehand. You can see the difference here. Um, and I'm just gonna do a really rough label and answer this question. So Pablo is mixed and I've just created a label. So going back to the um, overview of the project, sorry, one second. Well, the tightrope of doing live demos, isn't it, Clarice? Yeah. It definitely is. <laughs> this wasn't happening a second ago, but in case I am not able to get back to the um, project overview page, essentially what would happen next is um, you would be able to see all of the labels that you've created. And we do have metrics which really help you control the quality of your labels. We have metrics on um, how well your labeler is doing, so their performance. We assign each labeler in your project a score. Um, and we test them against certain labels. So for example, if you have a ground truth label um, set and you want to test any potential labelers into it, something that I often recommend for a client's workflow is creating a testing project. So here, 
Um, this is one of the projects that I've already created. This is an example of a benchmark. So essentially the label in this image as a specialist, I've identified as a perfect label. There's nothing that can be improved about it. So I wanna be able to test any labelers against this perfect label to see if they are good enough to be working with data in production. So this star indicates that it's a benchmark. And here are some of the other labelers that I'm testing. This person has an 88% score, which isn't too bad. Um, it's passing in my book. So you can see that their label is very similar to the perfect label. Um, so ideally a client will have kind of a threshold score, like anything above an 80% means this labeler has great performance. They will produce quality training data. Um, and here's an example of a bad label. They've just, it's just totally off the mark. You know, they, maybe they haven't seen a cat before. I don't know, but this is somebody that would need additional help with um, being able to create good labels. Very interesting. And so can I ask you a question? I mean, if, if you're a company that's using label box, um, if I didn't stumble across your company, would I be trying to do this myself? Would I not be even engaged in this type of activity? Like, do you find the service you provide in this case um, uh, to be revelatory where it's just like, I've never seen this before, or would they try to do something custom themselves? What's, what's the, um, what's the alternative, I guess? Yeah. So um, in my experience working with prospects and our clients, they've tried to create this tool on their own or something similar to this tool on their own realized it wasn't scalable because all of their efforts, all of the money dedicated to the data science team, the funding was dedicated to creating these tools, which is so, um, you know, not necessary. It's like if I wanted to create a painting, but I had to go to a woodworking shop and create my own paintbrush, like I wouldn't want to devote 90% of my time to creating those paintbrushes. I want to get to the art. Um, so in my experience, the people that I've dealt with who were interested in us came to us because they realized it was so frustrating that they weren't able to focus on what they wanted to focus on. And um, this is really where the fact that we Labelbox is a platform is really powerful. They are able to kind of um, have so much transparency into the process of creating their training data, but also it takes all of the pressure off of them, all of the time cost off of them for um, building these tools. They still have the flexibility, the granularity, but none of the, you know, some time cost. Yeah, that makes complete sense. All right, I'm, for the sake of time, we're gonna move on to our fourth um, kind of um, AI firm discourse with Andrea, but uh, there'll be a chance at the end to reloop with your stuff and hopefully get the synthesis thought going as well. Thank you, Clarice. Thank you. So that's a really great transition into Jonathan Eisenhoff. Eisenhoff? You Did I pronounce that time. right? <laughs> uh, and you're with discourse.ai. And tell, tell us, I, I really like this transition. So the, the notion of the why before we start to show the how. Yeah. So I'm sitting around, you know, kind of minding my own business, running a company. And one day I'm like, God, I wish I had discourse AI. What, what would that moment look like? You know, what, what's the missing that, that um, is the reason that you created discourse? Yeah, it's, that's, yeah, thank you. The background on, on why I started the company is um, you, most of the people, the company have 
really strong background in customer service, marketing, and sales, uh, specifically things like contact centers um, or, or automating contact centers. And one of the things, as an example, the, the pain point, I've lived it, which is why I went with the drivers for starting the company. Um, there, there was a project that, that I led at a, a, a wireless provider in North America. And the, the person in charge of customer care had a few questions and wanted some answers around um, what are things I should automate with things like speech to text or chatbots? What are some areas that I can optimize my business so that I'm serving my customers better? To be able to answer those kind of questions, you have to mine data. And the data, kind of data that we're mining is conversation data between customer service agents and their end customers or the consumers. And that can take the form of text chats or SMSs or web chat. It can also take the form of recorded calls in a, in a contact center that have been automatically converted into text. The challenge with doing that data mining is text is unstructured. And so if you want to um, mine for insights, you have to just like we've heard from Clarice, you know, just like you have a cat photo, conversational data is unstructured. You have the, the machine learning models need to have examples of what the, the structure should look like. And that's usually done by humans. And so in the case of this project I was I'm referencing, we had 20 people working for six months to generate an output that was a snapshot of one moment in time during the year. And, and so, and that was a big drain on the organization too, because we had to you know, interact with subject matter experts. We had to dive into different data stores. So that was sort of the vision or, or the pain point um, and behind the company. And, and that's why we built, built the product, which automates a lot of that work. Well, great. So show us, you can grab the, uh, grab the ball and, and walk us through. Thank you. All right. So I'm gonna share my screen. Yep, we can see it perfectly. All right, awesome. So this is, uh, I loaded some data a little bit earlier. The data that I loaded was um, a data set between agents and customers. This is a dummy data set. What that data set looks like is really simple. We have a, a unique conversation ID so we can identify one conversation from another. Um, each row tells us whether we're, this is an utterance or this, the thing that that a person said in the conversation, whether it's the client or the customer or the customer service or the sales agent. And then we have a timestamp, then we can see the text. So this was the input into our system. So if I flip back this and this is what we loaded. Once I've loaded data, in this case, I've loaded um, just under a thousand samples. As a business analyst, if, I'm look, if I wanna understand what are the most common things that I'm talking to customers about and what are the outcomes for those? And what are the most dominant paths or, or conversational steps that my agents and customers go through to get to a particular outcome? So that, that's super important. If, if I manage sales and I have you know, 100 salespeople or 50 salespeople, however, however big my team is, and I want to understand why is it that these two or three people are always performing better than everyone else? To get that level of analysis, you really have to dive into the data and understand what the moves they're making to get past objections. Or if I'm a in charge of customer service or customer care, what are the things that my best agents are doing that tend to lead to the, a, a good outcome? And so um, I'm gonna zoom in to the screen so we can see a little bit. We can see that we imported 
999 conversations. Now, when we ingest data into the system, it's running through eight different machine learning models. What these machine learning models are doing is, um, you know, we had heard from Kevin earlier that machine learning models need a lot of data to be able to learn. So what this system is doing, one way to think about it is that we're the AI that collects training data automatically to train AI. So uh, AI, AI is, is maybe a bit of a loaded term, but if we think in terms of maybe machine learning and machine, intelligent, and machine intelligence, these models need data and they need labeled data, they need training data. So what our system is doing is it's automatically labeling data, which autom automates the process, that, that manual process that we had talked about earlier. So I can see that the models that have ingested these just under a thousand conversations have discovered 75 different customer goals. So if I click on that box, it's going to show me the different customer goals that were discovered in those conversations. So I can see, for example, we found dispute charge, which there were 78 of those out of the 999. We have status payment, account balance, et cetera. If I want to start drilling down in, on some of this data, I can filter based upon the customer goal. I can do a keyword search. Maybe I want to look for transactions where somebody mentioned a credit card. I can click on apply. That's going to redraw the middle part, which I'll, I'll go through in a moment. I can uh, filter on turns or I can hide turns, which are the things in the middle. I'm going to flip to that now. So if I scroll, if I scroll down to the, the middle part, if I'm a business analyst, what I'm seeing right here in this process automates about three months of work. And we can, we can ingest data in near real time and be looking at things happening, you know, just, just now. So the way the visualization works is on the left-hand side, these are the customer's stated goals. So we have some customers that are asking about what is the status on my refund, or I want to add a debit card to my account, or I want to dispute a charge. Flowing out of the right-hand side of these goals, we have a number of different pipes. The thickness represents the proportion of distribution of conversations that went down a particular path. So I can see, for example, I'm going to clear out my filters. Um, I can see that for dispute charge, one of the first steps that happens is a customer greeting, like an agent says, thanks for calling. Um, how can I help you today? We can see that we have a validation step is a very common next step, which is um, to get started, can I have your first and last name? And then we can see that this moves all the way over to the right hand side where we get to outcomes. So a closing outcome would be something that means this conversation completed successfully. A request feedback idle session might mean that the customer timed out or they stopped responding. Now, if I wanted to start drilling down and discovering insights in this data, uh, one of the things that I might want to do, and I'm going to clear my filters again, um, I might want to pick one of these goals. So I'm going to just focus maybe on dispute charge as one of the, the tasks that's happening between agents and customers. And I can see that we have a greeting. I can see that we have the name validation step. Then most of the conversations flow to dispute charge where the customer says, hey, I, I have this charge in my account. I don't think it's mine. I think it could be fraud. So I scroll over to the right and I, I take a look at this. Now I see something that's really interesting here. Maybe I want to drill down on request user to call uh, because th that might be uh, a problem area that I want to solve for. So I want to get some more insight into that. So if I click on that, what that's going to do is it's going to bring up the list of conversations for dispute charge where the agent asked the customer to call back. So this little conversation drawer shows me the specific uh, conversation ID where this happened. 
the goals that were identified, the topics, and then the flow. These are the steps in the conversation um, on, on how we started the conversation and how it flowed all the way through to the end. So quick question, just for sure. our clarification, um, mm -hmm. this is being done kind of automatically. In other words- This is all, yeah. Okay, got yeah, it. The tagging, is, the tagging is, is coming up through sort of a natural language that's, in, that's the input and mm -hmm. then the tags are reverse engineered, or the, the system is developing its own uh, set of tags based on its own interpretation or whatever of the natural language. Is that right? Yeah, that's a, that's a, great, que that's a great question, and, and I, I, I should probably emphasize that more. Most machine learning models need training data that have been labeled by people. We completely automate that process. Thank you. So that was our helpful. system, yeah, our system, and we focus on conversational data, which, which that kind of a data set can be really complicated because it's hard yeah. to predict where a conversation is going to go. But and um, yeah. yeah, so I didn't want to slow you down because we actually need a little bit of a, of a fast forward on this. So sure um, yeah, go, so move forward because we have to, as I said, we have to get to the end so we can get to the end. So one, <laughs> sure, no problem. So one of the use cases, just to finish, one of the use cases that we have is customers that want to build a chatbot or a voice bot for customer service. So if I wanted to use this data set as an example, that's been automatically labeled by this discourse system. I've already picked dispute charge. I might click on export and I can select the bot kind of bot that I want to export to, or I can export it to a CSV or JSON format. I've already plugged in my API key. I can drill, I can drill into the specific data examples that were labeled by the models. So here, for example, here's all the sample utterances on how customers dispute a charge. And we can import that directly into a bot. We can look at the flows on how the bot might flow based upon all the different paths that are in the system. So I can pick some of these paths and I can use that to export to the, to, to the, to the bot. If I wanna look at one of these specific paths that are happening in my agent customer conversations, I can click on this and then further select, maybe I wanna see how's, how does that actually happen in that conversation and that would pull up that specific conversation. And then I can also tune the models by checking out conversations. If I see a label that's wrong, I can check it out and change the labels. So we also yeah. have the tools, Clarice mentioned, you have to have the right tools to train these models, that's absolutely right. And so we have the tools that go with that as well. So I have a feeling I could, I, I could really um, get deep into this. This is an area that uh, we're extremely interested in, but we don't have time. No worries. But, um, so my, my thinking is, um, first of all, I'll give you an insight and then I'd like to get back to the, maybe the panel I'll grab back um, so we can do some summaries. Okay. We'll let Jonathan go first with the summary. Um, one, of the, um, one of the insights that I see here is that in the old days, um, we had um, changes of behavior. So you would say, stop saying good morning and start saying, have a nice day. You know, you would do these ins insertions in this customer service behavior, but it was kind of based on hearsay in a way. It wasn't really deep data that was informing it. And so it strikes me that this would be a much more scientific way of being able to, to do a, an insight, a change in behavior, see if it worked or not, and then actually in much quicker time, have a much better customer experience. Is that, is that one of the ahas from, is that one of the, the uh, attributes? I think, I think, yeah, it absolutely is. I think when, uh, especially customer service executives see their data, it's probably the first time they've ever seen their data in this way, um, which is usually a very, a very manual process. So that's absolutely 
um, one, one of the ways. And, and in the knowledge that you're talking about, um, I call it tribal knowledge. And so you have some of the best agents in the company. They're not necessarily writing down how they do what they do to be the best performer. And so to capture that knowledge is really, really challenging. And absolutely, we capture that, that kind of tribal knowledge. We try to capture as much of it as, much of it as we can. So we Super can interesting. Organization. Yeah. Super interesting and lots and lots of potential. I'm going to go backwards just to make sure everybody's mic is on. We'll do a, a quick recap. And if, if you don't mind, Jonathan, we'll start with you. Go to Clarice, then Christian, and then Kevin to wrap us up. Um, we'd love to have like an aha or an insight from this, just something that maybe you learned from somebody else or some takeaway for our audience of practitioners, you know, people who are leaders trying to bring digital innovation to companies in, in a wide variety of industries. So what's an aha or something quick you'd like to share? Maybe a word of wisdom, Jonathan, some for, thoughts? Yeah, for me, I mean, I, I'm obviously focused in, in conversational data, so I'll just stay there. So the aha moment that I had that I think a lot of companies and a lot of executives are having is that the patterns that I need to do automation or customer journey finding or creating a chatbot, the data is already there. Every, you know, every conversation you're going to have with customers today happened yesterday, last week, and last month. The data is there. And the challenge is mining it effectively to capture it. And so I think the aha moment is you don't have to start from scratch when you're, when you're deploying um, you know, like a digital transformation initiative. Uh, you don't have to start from scratch. You don't have to create your own data set. You can use the data you already have. The data is there. Great. Clarice, what's your quick, your quick closeout for us? An aha. So an aha for me was understanding that um, rather than solely focusing on, you know, the very complex algorithms that are typically run through as the last step of your model, um, or just, you know, just these very complex concepts, there should be more of a focus on data management and collaboration. And this is something that can be often undervalued when really it's so essential to um, building your model. Great. Good, good thought. Uh, Christian from Copenhagen. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think, I think one of our greatest aha moments were when we started seeing uh, multiple iterations with clients. It's a quite complicated data set, but all of a sudden we started to be able to not fully predict, but suggest what would be the next focus for our clients. Uh, so all of a sudden they could turn it around and say, well, what should we look in next time? And we could say, well, there's these patterns in our data set, and this was your general preferences in the previous kind of iteration. So now we suggest to go for these directions and we're actually able to um, build them a continuous learning for themselves and they, they achieve larger and a quicker value through uh, what we build. That's great. And Kevin, round us out. Yeah, look, I, I think one of the big aha moments was the first time, um, you know, we saw a system that would find uh, far more bugs, including really critical ones that, uh, uh, you know, teams of hundreds of people had never seen, could never find. That's pretty eye-opening. But, but uh, as an aside and a, a recommendation, I think on behalf of all of us is um, large companies, large companies as well, should not be scared of this field, right? You don't have to understand the math. You don't have to do the math. There are companies like everyone here doing this work. Um, engage in POCs, have reasonable expectations for your POCs, and don't make these POCs one day 
I've had companies come in and say, well, we, you know, we tried this for three days and we didn't find anything. No, 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 months and months and months. And over the course of a year, it's going to blow you away. But over the course of months, you're going to integrate it into your systems. It's going to learn from your systems. You've got to give these things time, but you're going to be very successful. This is all great, great technology. Super exciting. This is a great, great uh, set of demos. Really appreciate it. Sean and I value um, what everybody said. It was actually could have gone on for another hour in, in our opinion. Uh, we'll invite the panelists to jump off. Thank you very much. And Sean and I will just round out the conversation quickly with a couple of announcements. Thank you so much to Christian and to Clarice and to Jonathan and to Kevin. Great to, great to hear your insights. And Kevin, it's on us now. <laughs> And okay, we have so Sean, yeah, we Sean. Andrea, we've just, uh, we've anointed the 99 books that kind of, we're all about change, but these were the books that changed us. So um, um, certainly jump to futureproofingnext.com uh, to uh, have oh, a look sorry. at what we've done. And we've got two future webcasts coming up. One, um, it's a little bit self-promotional, but we think there's a lot of really good stuff to share. We've got a book that's coming out in February and we definitely want to give people a preview and we also have um, something on scaling, growth, and innovation, which is increasingly a challenging and interesting topic uh, later in February. Well, this was a, an amazing day of AI. Uh, what, are your, what are your final observations, Sean? Oh, man. Um, so, uh, you know, without uh, the mistake of saying just what our fellow panelists said, I, I do think from a, a corporate innovation standpoint, um, three things. One, uh, there's been this, this spirit and mentality around experimenting. I think you have to, because uh, if you don't do this, um, you're going to be finding the catch-up curve to be that much steeper. I think, two, getting some of the things right. Uh, just uh, I think the eye-opener for me today is making sure the data coming in is right, or maybe some, using some of the tools that uh, we've seen today to get your data right, to get conversations, talking to imagery, talking to other things is really important. And I guess the last thing I would say would be um, the increasingly sophisticated things around AI are yet to happen. I think most people are just dabbling with, um, similar to what Clarice was doing around, is that a cat or not a cat? That doesn't seem to be a huge management question. Uh, I think once you get past that cat question, there's some interesting things that happen down the road that say, okay, 12 months from now, how will my marketplace be? AI, can you help me? Um, uh, look at some of the variables associated with that. Oh, great. Within 10 seconds, I'm getting that versus doing that in three months. Um, I think that's where some real value will be happening over the next three to five years. Well, I can't tell you uh, how much I learned today. It was really incredible. Lots of different things and perspectives from all over the world and I've really enjoyed it and look forward to the next podcast, webcast. Wonderful. So until then, we'll be seeing everybody in the future.